0: Yeah, I gotta admit, it seems like it's time for another Bible Geek, so might as well have at it. And I am your have-been, has-been host, Robert M. Price. I want to get to a bunch of these great-sounding questions. You'll see how good they are momentarily. And, uh, let's see. First, I want to reiterate what I said last time. Uh, there's an exciting new opportunity for you and I to get together and have a dialogue. Uh, and uh, that is to uh, check out my Jemmy page. What the heck is that, you may ask? Uh, you sp- here's the link. J-E-M-I dot A-P-P slash Robert dot M dot Price. Uh dot uh, app. Slash Robert M Price with uh, periods after Robert and M, no capitals, no spaces. Uh, this is a brand new thing where you can uh, talk uh, with me via Zoom setup, and uh, it it charges you. I got to admit, uh, and uh, it's possible to do it in allotments of 15 minutes half an hour or an hour. And uh, you can go to this site and uh, program in uh, preferred time. And uh, then you can let me know your... Well, or just on the spot, you can let me know your preferred topic. But I've done things like this, uh, like uh, interviews and the like, and this would just be you interviewing me. Uh, and so I hope you'll take me up on that. And uh, again, it's Jemi, J-E-M-I dot app slash robert.m.price So check it out, as Dr. Steve Brule likes to say. Okay, from Greg Miller from Tacoma, Washington. He says, In Acts, the writer mentions the apostles performing signs and wonders as well as miracles. If miracles are mentioned separately, it would seem that signs and wonders are something other than healings, resurrections, etc., What do you think the writer wanted the reader to imagine the apostles doing exactly? Well, actually, I kind of think it's all synonyms. It's just a way of saying a whole lot of miracles. Um, Sign means pretty much the same thing as miracle, except that it emphasizes uh, the, the, the fact that the miracle, the strange event, points to something. It's a sign of something. Uh, some lesson or truth about God is uh, readily derivable from it. Uh, wonders just has to do with uh, the uh, the sense of awe prompted in the witness by it. Uh, so, um, but uh, it it is possible that they had something other than healings and resurrections. I mean, what more do you need? But. It could be uh, signs in heaven, like the the uh, writer of the book of Revelation says he saw, uh, and uh, you could, or like the sun spinning around at Fatima. Could be that, who knows. Uh, could be uh, having a corpse prophesy. I think something like that is attributed to Simon Magus in the uh, Apocryphal Acts. Um. But uh, I don't know, with what the Witch of Endor did causing the dead, Samuel, to appear and uh, answer questions, uh, I don't know, maybe so. But generally speaking, it it seems like it's uh, just more of the same, I think. And uh, uh, so who knows? If, If anybody else has any ideas, let me know. Let's see. Um, here's a goodie, a a smarticus from the UK here. Uh, I know it's been a while. I decided I needed to educate myself more in all this great endeavor and have spent the last four or five years reading ancient Near Eastern history, archaeology, and general Old Testament studies. I've only managed to catch the odd episode, I'm afraid to say. Uh, I ended up going down a few rabbit holes along the way, and it's been fun. I arrived at a fairly conclusive, minimalist position with some caveats. So a question. I was recently listening to a famous actor here using William Shakespeare to legitimize some cause or another in the arts community. It occurred to me that her language was very much like that of a confirmed believer, as you would find in a religious context. I started to ask myself, did good old Willie actually write all the plays attributed to him? What do we actually know about him? After a little inquiry, it would seem there is a small but vocal group of scholars who think he may not have written all or any of the plays. Mainstream scholars disagree and say there is no reason to doubt the authenticity of the history assigned to Shakespeare. Now, doesn't that sound familiar? Small but passionate group throwing doubt on a historical figure's authenticity? A scholarly elite defending their position at all costs? As I read into this, it's actually very interesting stuff. What says the holy geek? Well, I, I've been aware of this uh, critical tendency for many years, but I, I don't know the texts of Shakespeare well enough to even be able to evaluate the arguments. The only one I know is the idea that well, this guy couldn't have written all these plays. Yeah, I, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't bank on that. But I'm sure they're, you know, they're more. Uh, sophisticated arguments than that but it's well worth asking Uh, and i just don't happen to know how one would settle it but it doesn't i mean it's sociologically or statistically it's a fringe theory but that doesn't mean it's false and um, i'll be interested to hear if somebody comes up with some way of settling this one way or the other but you're right it is so much like the the dutch radical view on the pauline epistles Yeah, so keep up the good work, Smarty. Let's see. uh, This one is from Wade from good old Indiana, where my uh, brother and his great family live. And, of course, John Loftus is from there. Uh, Greetings, may health and happiness bless the geek. Oh, well, yeah, that is happening. Uh, And uh, I appreciate the wish. I wonder what consideration, if any, you've given to the creatures described in Job chapters 40 to 41, namely uh, the behemoth and the leviathan. I previously considered the leviathan to be purely mythological, thanks to its portrayal in a Disney cartoon movie about Atlantis. However, my opinion was changed by an argument made by Aaron Ra a science communicator and fervent critic of creationism. Oh yeah, I uh, know Aaron. I made an action figure of him once. Uh, Ra argues that the Leviathan must be a huge Nile crocodile due to the many details described of the creature in Job. The tightly packed rows of shields on his back, its mouth having doors that are ringed with teeth, The trail left in the mud by the creature's dragging underbelly. The tendency of the creature to stir up the deep like a boiling cauldron. Crocodiles rapidly spin their prey underwater in a maneuver called a death roll. I thought that referred to Cinnabon. Anyway, um, these many parallels to the actual Nile crocodile have convinced me that the real-life creature likely contributes a lot to the Leviathan described in Job. However, what are we to make of the claim that the Leviathan emits light from its eyes, smoke from its nostrils, and flames out of its mouth? Is the author of Job embellishing? Is he employing hyperbole, or is he repeating local rumors about the crocodile that he takes to be valid? Uh, Let's see. Uh, The biblical description of the behemoth brings along its own confusions. The tail that sways like a cedar causes certain creationists to imagine a brontosaurus with a hulking tree trunk of a tail. Critics rightly point out that a big, mature tree trunk will hardly sway, and therefore the line must refer to a cedar, branch, or sapling. Arun Ra takes up this argument exactly, saying that the behemoth must be an elephant with its characteristic stick-like tail. This checks out to me, uh, and there are other clues... Behemoth's immense strength, its ability to stand securely in a raging river, and the claim that the creature's nose is impervious to traps and snares. Its nose? Who would be tempted to ensnare an animal by its nose? Unless its uh, nose is a big, meaty trunk like that... uh, I'm having trouble scrolling properly here. Uh, Unless its nose is a big, meaty trunk like that of an elephant. Do you also find this a plausible reading of the behemoth? Um, Thirdly, what of the unicorn? The Bible, though it mentions the unicorn several times, hardly explores the creature in any detail. The few passages I found refer to it as an exemplar of something with great strength. To me, this is plausibly a rhinoceros, but the evidence um, uh, uh, directly to that effect is slim. Finally, are there any clues about these creatures from other ancient texts outside of the Bible? Um, uh, Well, yeah, as for the unicorn, from what I have read they they saw the uh, Hebrew, the translators of King James, perhaps earlier versions too, I don't know, but at least the King James saw the Hebrew word for the aurochs, A-U-R-O-C-H-S, which was a huge um, steer, basically, or ox, and uh, it had long, curved horns. It was an ancestor of cows and bulls and so forth it went extinct as far as we know in the late 17th century so they were still around when the King James um, translators were uh, at work though there weren't any in in the west Uh, they're all Asian I believe and uh, they didn't know what the heck it referred to and so they figured it might be a unicorn had something to do with horns Uh, so that one seems to be just a Uh, innocent mistranslation. Um, I think... uh, I've also heard Behemoth taken to be a hippopotamus, and I believe in Ezekiel it refers to God uh, hooking Behemoth uh, by its jaw. Uh, And um, uh, the... um, And it seems to me that the... The name behemoth implies that it was always what it is supposed to be in ample apocryphal citations where it says that in the Messianic banquet, the uh, the two big, you know, you have to, you go to a wedding reception, they want to know whether you want uh, steak or fish. Well, in this case, uh, do you want behemoth slices or uh, pieces of Leviathan? Supposed to be giant monsters, and uh, and Behemoth is the plural for Bohu, uh, which uh, is mentioned in the gen- the priestly creation in of Genesis one. The earth was without form and void, Tohu and Bohu. Uh, void is is the singular. Bohu and Behemoth is the uh, is the plural. Uh, why the plural? Well, they could have envisioned that there were several of them, that it was a species, or it could be one of those instances where the uh, that plural ending is supposed to just denote the great power uh, of the um, the one with the name. Uh, Leviathan, I think is uh, is more clearly uh, just a a legendary a mythic being because it has a couple of names, uh, Rahab and Leviathan and Nehushtan. Leviathan uh, is the same as the Canaanite dragon Lotan, and uh, uh, both attest the origin of the name and the notion of Leviathan as derived from the Litani River uh, in Syria and Lebanon. It was all Syria decades. And uh, why'd they do that? Well, because the idea was that when these rivers flooded, you could be in big trouble if you lived near them, right? And, uh, and, wh- and, and Leviathan had seven heads, as is mentioned in the Psalms, and again in Revelation, and uh, that, that is a reference to the various tributaries that flowed into the, the Litani River. And so what they did was to personify it as a dangerous dragon of the deep. By the way, need I add that the Greek hydras is the same thing, because it's simply the Greek word hudor, which means water. And that's just like the personified yam, or the sea in uh, the Bible, where it says that in the primordial era, the time of creation, God tamed yam, and uh, so, it, it's possible that the these monsters take some of their description from known animals, who you wouldn't want to fool around with, but they're they're certainly not merely references to it. I only have ever heard of fundamentalists trying to rationalize these beasts as actual known animals, uh, because they they seem to be chary of saying that any obvious mythology outside of the Bible uh, was believed in by biblical writers and uh, but i'm I'm a little surprised to hear this rationale I mean you know why deny that the bible has outrageous mythology in it, it sure seems like uh, it does right um Oh, let's see, I guess that's probably pretty much it. I mean, God defeated and destroyed Leviathan in the process of creating the world. He made the world from its carcass, just like Marduk created the world from the carcasses of uh, Tiamat and Apsu. It's the same myth, and um, there weren't any crocodiles yet when he did that. So that's that's what I'm thinking. Uh Aaron Rye is, is really terrific, though. I mean, this is just... And he could be right, but it seems to me it's, there's a little more to it than that. Okay. Uh, from James the Jest, vegetarian to the Bible geek. I own and have read both the pre-Nicene New Testament and Holy Fable, Volume 2 of the Gospels and Acts, Undistorted by Faith. Thank you for these two wonderful works. There is an issue between the two of them that I hope you can reconcile and shed some light on. In other words, can I harmonize the contradiction? Hallelujah. Uh, In the pre-Nicene New Testament, you talk about Marcion's, quote, thorough repudiation of Judaism. You also provide a reconstruction of Marcion's gospel, a chopped-down version of canonical Luke, including certain known modifications gleaned from the Church Fathers, diatribes against Marcion's heresies. Marcion preached that Yahweh, the creator God of the Old Testament, was inferior to uh, God the Father who sent Jesus. He omitted the Old Testament from his canon, only including his version of the gospel in Paul's letters. Um, By the way, let me just point out, I don't say that uh, Marcion omitted anything. Uh, I, I uh, rather follow the Tumingen view that's been revived by John Knox and Joseph Tyson and others. It says that um, scholars have too naively followed what Tertullian and others said when they found that the Marcionite text did not have certain passages familiar to them and said that he must have omitted that stuff seems more likely that uh, Marcion's text is the original. And in order to, uh, to uh, sanitize it for Catholic use, uh, Polycarp probably um, added material, uh, quite a bit of it. And so uh, when the um, apologists, Like Justin Martyr and Tertullian say that, oh, Marcion cut this out and he cut that out. It's, and and they, I think Tertullian even says, and you say we added stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think that is what happened. So I think that's why the the two uh, sets of texts are different. Anyway, uh, okay, in Holy Fable Volume 2, the central section of Luke has, quote, uh, Jesus delivering a Deutero Deuteronomy a second law like the one Moses promulgates in the book of Deuteronomy, and quote. You go into great detail how Luke uses stories, catchwords, words, and commentary to follow and expand on Deuteronomy in the same narrative order. You credit C.F. Evans for first pointing some of this out, all of it really, uh, Whoever wrote this part of Luke from about chapters 10 to 18 probably had a copy of Deuteronomy open for reference as he wrote and had a scholarly interest in that part of the Jewish Torah. Uh, Pretty much this entire central Deuteronomy section of Luke, with the exception of the parable of the prodigal son, is in your reconstruction of Marcion's Gospel. Perhaps this goes to the larger question of Marcion's trying to extricate his version of Christianity from Judaism when the sources of Christianity are enduringly entangled in Judaism, inseparable. But my question is, why is Marcion including in his gospel this central section of Luke, an extensive reference and elaboration on Jewish scripture, When he was opposed to Jewish scripture, did Marcion himself write this section or who did? Well, we don't know. I mean, we know it is the Marcionite canon, the Marcionite version, uh, but we don't really know. If, if it was the contribution of Marcion himself or his disciples, very much like trying to find exactly what the historical Jesus, assuming there was one, did and said and what was attributed to him later. But nonetheless, why would any Marcionite who put this together leave that stuff in? Uh well, actually that's not that um that big a problem. I think it's no contradiction because you have the same apparent difficulty in the epistles where various Old Testament passages are quoted. Um in, in the Pauline epistles, what are they doing there? Well, as Hermann Dettering pointed out, sometimes they're there, but no attribution to Scripture is given. You wouldn't know whether where he got it or or if he uh coined the sayings himself. He it doesn't mean he couldn't like anything in the Jewish scripture, but he didn't want to give credit to the Jewish scripture, and the same thing is true here, I think, uh, where um, he may not have uh, uh well, in, if it, yeah, it's in the Marcionite text, which just means that. Uh, Tertullian and the others did not find it missing right, Uh, uh, from from the Marcionite texts that we're looking at. But it doesn't say, hey, here's Jesus' version of Deuteronomy. It took many centuries for C.F. Evans to notice that and point it out. And uh, a whole lot of it, it poses no problem to a Marcionite Gentile Christian. Uh, a whole bunch of it is uh, good Christian stuff, and the uh, often the thematic links to Deuteronomy uh, are not legalistic. They're they're not promulgating laws, uh, and some of them are rewritten, uh, like um, uh, in a broader way. Uh, and one great example would be uh, the parable of the. Pharisee and the tax collector where the tax the, the uh, Pharisee is lampooned as standing before God patting himself on the back saying oh Lord I thank you that I'm not as other men like this crummy tax collector here. No uh, I tithe everything I get and I fast during the week and this that and the other thing <clears throat> well this is like a parody of the uh of the Deuteronomic thing, where they tell you to in offering a sacrifice to start bragging on your own righteousness, to remind God like a kid writing to Santa Claus, "I've been extra good this year. This is what I want. I deserve it." Or the uh, some of the other things that in in uh, Luke, and that I believe were in Marcion's copy as well, uh, where there are. <clears throat> invidious contrasts drawn with Old Testament stuff like um, Jesus um, summons people to follow him and, uh, and, uh, and and in one case where somebody is an eager recruit he says well you be sure uh, don't look back um, because uh, whoever puts his hand to the plow and looks back he's not worthy of the kingdom of God that sounds like a reference to uh, to Elijah calling Elisha, whom he found plowing the field, uh, and he bids him to come and. Um, he says, "Okay, sure, but let me just go back and say goodbye to my parents." Well, in Luke, Jesus would say, "We don't have time for that. Let's go now." But, uh, but uh, Elisha said, "Yeah, okay, go ahead, and then come back." Apparently, Marcion thought that was Elijah was letting him off too easy. Or how about the thing where the disciples and Jesus are given the cold shoulder when they're trying to find? shelter in a Samaritan village, and James and John say it goes no good SOPs. Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to incinerate those bastards just like Elijah did? And Jesus says, you don't know what you're talking about. The Son of Man came to save men's lives, not to destroy them, and they leave and check into the Holiday Inn or something. Well, this is based on uh, in 2 Kings one, where the king sends uh, fifty soldiers to to, dra- to arrest Elijah, and uh, he won't come peacefully. He calls down fire from heaven to roast these guys. Word gets back to the king, who sends another detachment of fifty men, and the same <clears throat> thing happens. He tries a third time, and these guys are shaking in their sandals, right? Because they know what happened the first two times. So they're like bowing and scraping and saying to Elijah, "Uh, have mercy, please. And this time uh, an angel says, go along with them. It's okay. And he rebukes the king and stuff like that. Um, So Elijah didn't care about frying, well, really 150 of these guys until he was told just to leave it at an even hundred. But Jesus, invited to do the same thing, says, "Ah, no way, we're not about that. Jesus looks kind of better. Or in Deuteronomy, we have the law of uh, how uh, people who are conscripted to fight in a war for Israel, eh, they don't have to go if they're newly married and just uh, plow the fields and stuff. But again, there's not time for that with the preaching of the kingdom of God. So when um, the people in the parable of the Great Supper uh, get the, in, the invitations, say, okay, this is it, we warned you, now it's time, let's go. Uh, suppers on the table, and I say, well, you know, I'd like to, but I've got these fields to plow, or uh, I'd like to, but I'm on my honeymoon, I don't think my wife would appreciate my leave-in and all that, and these people are condemned. I mean, it sounds like a stricter viewpoint satirizing what Deuteronomy says, so uh, that does sound like Marcionism to me, so I don't think there really is a contradiction there. Thanks, James the Jest, though mm-hmm. Okay, Bob Johnson uh, Howdy, Dr. Price uh, Dr. Doctor Price, this is Bob Great name, no? Uh, many times you've mentioned Irenaeus, Eusebius, and Polycarp in the context of specific humans who possibly played a role in writing or affecting the, effecting the spread of Ideology Advancing Modifications of Scripture. Uh, A few questions. One, am I paraphrasing your view correctly? Yeah, insofar as I'm seconding Bart Ehrman's brilliant work in um, The Orthodox Corruption of Scripture, where we have uh, variant readings here and there, where it looks like it wasn't just some kind of goof, but rather a, a scribe trying to improve the text. So various... Um, heretics could no longer appeal to passages that seemed to back up their opinions. Uh, And uh, this didn't happen a whole lot, uh, but it it certainly did happen some. Uh, Most of those people remain nameless. Well, I guess really all of them do. Um, uh, I just talked about how uh, it depends on... Well, if you if you think the apologists were correct, Marcion or a Marcionite might have uh, chopped stuff from uh, from scripture. But I think it's just the reverse that uh, Catholic apologists padded it out considerably. Uh, but we don't know who they would have been uh, unless it's Polycarp, who is my candidate for that. I agree with David Trobish on that one. I think it makes a powerful case for that. Uh, And then uh, there is the famous guy, I don't know if anybody knows his name, I don't remember reading it, uh, who uh, was uh, talking to Erasmus when he was preparing uh, a Greek uh, edition of the whole New Testament, which most people, of course, are reading in the Latin translation. Well, he said, "Eh, might as well have a Greek text since these things were written in Greek. Uh, and and actually, they were they were so scarce. He had to, for part of it, he had to just t- translate the Latin back into Greek hypothetically. Um, so you know, he, textual resources are pretty limited for him. Well, his pal is looking over this, and he comes to First John and comes to the passage that he was used to reading in the Vulgate as saying, there are three that bear witness in heaven, uh, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one, and there are three that bear witness on earth, uh, and so on and so on. But um, this is the great text for the Trinity, right? I mean, that would settle a lot of problems if that were in there. Well, this guy says, hey, where is it? I, I don't see it in your Greek version. Uh, and uh, Erasmus said, well, yeah, that's because I can't find any textual support for it in any Greek text. And he says, well, uh, I think maybe I know where I can find one. And so shortly uh, he comes back with uh a, a Greek text that does contain it, and it looks kind of like it was a forgery, uh, and so because no early manuscripts have that, and so uh, again, if his name is known, I don't know it uh, if anybody does happen to, because I'll, I'll never remember to try to look it up after this is over, I know that but if you do, and his name is known let me know okay uh, Let's see. I think... Yeah, okay, David Perlmutter, who is an MD, and I think a biology professor. He says, I was just listening to your podcast in June 2, 2020. Um, I was intrigued by the discussion about the attestations and inferences about what was the age of Jesus when he was tried and crucified. I've certainly grown up with the assumption that he was a person in his early 30s, or 33, or something like that, although I don't remember specifically where that came from. But let me just pause and say, well, that's from the uh, the uh, Gospel of Luke right before Jesus is baptized. It said when he appeared publicly he was about 30. Okay. Anyway, um, Uh, Let's see, Uh, but it got me to thinking that today, when a person relatively young in life, somebody in their 20s or 30s, dies, the comments are, Oh, he was so young, he had so much life left to live. So it's a part of the tragedy that they haven't gotten older and experienced more of life before they passed away. On the other hand, when somebody in their 70s or 80s passes away, while people uh, mourn them, the, co- the comment is made that, well, they've lived a long life and they've gotten to experience many things. Uh, now, you've talked about uh, in the past on your podcast about how we have to be very careful when we try to understand biblical passages, not to judge them by the mores of our time. So, for example, in the Bronze Age and the Iron Age, hospitality to a stranger was an incredibly important concept that, while not completely ignored today, just isn't part of our ma- main focus of ethics. Uh, what I'm getting to in this question, is it an ancient concept that somebody dying young had so much of a life to live, so, and so that added to the tragedy? If so, then Jesus dying at 33 would have been part of the Christ message, right? That he gave his life even though he was still youthful. It was a greater sacrifice by that measure. Uh, What do you think would have made a more meaningful impact at the time? Uh, Let me just pause for the last paragraph of this. Uh, I think generally speaking, people did... Rationalize, like saying, "Well, only the good die young. Don't worry, you know your your son or whoever who died young. It, don't think of it as God snuffing him out, God judging him. No, no, no. Uh, I mean, possible, but there's no reason to think so. Um, and uh, the reason I'm I feel pretty sure of this is that there is a famous uh, story in uh, I guess in the Mishnah. Where uh, a, a young rabbi who was a real prodigy died when he was 28 years old, and uh, they're all weeping and saying, like you you mentioned, oh what a shame! How much more could he have done, and all that? Uh, why you know why did God take him? Well, this uh, rabbi I forget which one. Uh, at the funeral gave this oration, this parable, and he said once there was a king who had a bunch of hired workers working in his uh, vineyard, I guess it was, Uh, and, um, and they're all out there in the hot sun and so forth breaking their backs and sweating up a storm. And after the first two hours, the king is looking around, inspecting the scene, and he comes up to this, uh, this one guy and says to him, hey, you, you've done enough. Why don't you join me? Let's, let's take a walk and shoot the breeze. So the king and this, this worker walk around the rest of the day, palling around. The end of the day comes, and this will remind you of a Matthew and parable. And everybody, including the two-hour worker, is paid the same amount. And just like in Matthew's parable, the other ones start grousing and griping. and said, this guy only worked two lousy hours and he's getting the same pay as us. And the king said, well, yeah, but there's a reason for that. In two stinking hours, this guy put in more work than the rest of you did for a whole day. <laughs> oh, I see. Uh, and, uh, and he said, you see, that's what's happened here. Uh, Rabbi Bun Bar Hiyah He he was such He did so much work Interpreting the Torah And teaching it That uh, God figured Look why don't you knock off You've done more than could be expected Um, And so um, That shows you That there was a need To try to explain What was considered to be a sorrowful Tragedy in this guy's case, at least. Uh, so I think that presupposes people did figure, oh, no, what a what a terrible anomaly this is, uh, though you could possibly explain it away. Uh, let's see here. Uh, then uh, uh, David goes on. He says, The other part about this that intrigues me is that the lifespan of people was much shorter back then. I think I've read that the average lifespan at the time of Jesus was probably somewhere in your 30s or 40s, I've heard. Of course, that was skewed by a massive die-off in children and in childhood, so a lot of young women died and a lot of children before the age of five died. Yes, we know that there were many people who lived to a ripe old age, but if half the people in the world of Jesus were dead before 33, was it really that poignant or impactful in the society that somebody should die at age 33? Um, So what was the greater sacrifice, dying old or dying young? Uh, Is it Gregory of Nyssa or one of the Cappadocian theologians in the 4th century? was dealing with all these questions about why did Jesus die so young? Um, why, I mean, if he just had to die, uh, why wasn't he just, why did God uh, tell Mary and Joseph to get the heck out of Bethlehem? Why not let Herod the Great kill him, right? Or uh, why didn't uh, God allow Jesus to die as an old man? as um, Irenaeus thought, sort of. He said, you know, Jesus died at age 50. Um, but most didn't. Uh, why in his 30s? And he said, well, symbolically it was important because if Jesus had been killed as a baby, uh, well, he's defenseless. Uh, but if he is uh, an old geezer, he's not at the height of his powers, and so he was an easy target. But if he dies in the full Flood of manhood in his prime. It shows that this was a battle against the powers of evil uh, that he temporarily lost, but then came roaring back. But at any rate, as for the the average lifespan, um. I really do think that is is completely explained by what you said—that so many died uh, in in childbirth or in childhood. I mean, what kind of medicine did they have, and so forth? Uh, and so that it wouldn't have seemed like half the people in Jesus' day died—the ones that never really got started. That was almost like talking about a miscarriage. Um, As of the people who survived, I I don't think only uh, half of them lived to be in their 30s or 40 at the most, especially since uh, Psalm 90 certainly implies that uh, most people lived to be 70, or and it wasn't uncommon that they lived to be 80. Uh, and I just don't think that would appear in a, in a text like that if it were known not to be at all true. So I think it, it really has to do with, um, well, with those factors. So I could be wrong, obviously, uh, but that's what I make of it. Thanks, Dave. Oh, let's see. Uh, Greg from Minnesota uh, says, could you address your thoughts on the historicity of the Buddha? I'm certainly no scholar in the area, but the story of Siddhartha seems to me to have so many mythological elements that it's hard to take it literally at all. Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, the Buddha is a mythic figure. And uh, part of that is, well, I guess there are three things I can think of. Just like in biblical studies, if you have two different versions of a story, one of them uh, spectacular. The other one, pretty mundane. You have to assume, short of uh, buying a time machine, uh, that the less spectacular one is closer to the truth because who would have made that up if the earlier, the original version, uh, was the more spectacular? No one would. Uh, and uh, what do you know? In the case of one of the most uh, fantastic and great stories about prince siddhartha the story of the four passing sights which you probably know this is a great example because the way it reads in the buddhist gospels there are two big ones um, it, it says that the uh, prophecy had uh, revealed to siddhartha's father that who was a great emperor that uh, his son siddhartha would Either would become either a world ruler or a world redeemer. Well, this guy, as a, as an emperor, he wasn't too interested in uh, saving anybody. He was interested in conquest. So he did everything he could to prevent his son, as he grew up, from uh, ever seeing anything the world might need to be saved from. He had huge grounds and uh, incredible. Uh, opulent palace, and, and so forth, so that the the prince scarcely knew there was a world out there, or if he did, he probably thought it was all just as good, but he never had need to leave the place. And uh, But one day, and that was the whole idea, right? Oh yeah, there's nothing to worry about. But one day he s- decides at least to take a uh, chariot ride around the palace grounds, and uh, so the the father can't very well deny him that, and he calls in the charioteer, and he says, listen, uh, if you want to keep your head, you'd better make sure that my son does not see anything untoward, if you know what I mean. Oh, your majesty, you bet. So he takes him out in the chariot, and uh, uh, and they see a sick guy uh, vomiting into the ditch or something, uh, groaning and rolling around. Uh, and, uh, and it turns out this was a god uh, in a guise because he wanted to confute the intent of, of Suratha's father. It's, it's about time he learns what the world is really like. So takes on the form of this uh, guy uh, vomiting. Well, the prince sees this and he asks the charioteer, what the heck is that? What's going on with this guy? What's the matter with him? And uh, the charioteer's thinking, what's about to be the matter with him? And he says, well, (laughs) I hate to tell you this, Prince Siddhartha, but this guy is what we call sick. I must have eaten something that didn't agree with him or something like that. Uh, is he the only one, Siddhartha asks? I mean, this couldn't happen to me, could it? And he says, well, to tell you the truth, it happens to pretty much everybody sooner or later. And yeah, I mean, it'd be real surprising if it didn't happen to you. Oh boy, that pretty much kills my afternoon. Let's just go back home. And so they do, and the the emperor hears about this, and he says uh, to the charioteer, next time Siddhartha wants to go out, he says, okay, I'm going to give you a break this time, but uh, he, he mustn't see anything bad this time, you got it? Oh, yes, yes. Well, this time, uh, the prince sees what well, he doesn't know is a god, um, disguised as an old man, and, uh, hobbling along on a cane, and muttering him to himself, and so on, and, uh, uh, he's uh, and and recoils because he's never even seen anybody that old, right? They shuffle them out uh, when they're, they're starting to get infirm, and uh, hey, well, where's Uncle so and so? He he's on a business trip. Don't worry. Uh, and uh, so now he sees this old codger, and he says, "Oh good God, uh, what's the deal with this guy?" He says, oh, Prince Siddhartha, he's what we call old. Uh, well, now, you're not telling me this happens to everybody, including me, are you? (sighs) Yeah, I guess I shouldn't say this, but that's in store for everybody. Oh, no. Let's get out of here. Let's go back home. Well, you guessed it. Uh, Soon he decides he's in the mood for another ride. And the emperor warns the um, charioteer, be careful. He says, look, I'm trying to be careful. And so he takes him out. But this time, uh, uh, one of the gods shows up as a corpse. Uh, Probably ravens picking his eyeballs out and stuff like that. And Prince Siddhartha says, oh no, Uh, oh no, what is this? It's a dead man You don't mean Everybody dies Do you? Yes I do In fact you know your uncle Mel That's what happened to him Oh no And you know back to the palace they go You would think he's had enough But he wants to go out a fourth time and uh, so he does, and this time he sees a god in the guise of an ascetic monk, a mendicant monk, that is, someone who uh, trick-or-treats, basically, looking for charity, because the monks don't engage in secular employment. They spend their time meditating. Um, and he—and so uh, the Buddha is uh, the, the, the Bodhisattva, the Buddha-to-be. Siddhartha says to the charioteer, He's intrigued, and he says, well, what is going on with this guy? Oh, he's a monk. What's he doing? Uh, And he tells him, and uh, he says, well, why does he live like this? Well, he is seeking salvation. Oh, and he immediately thinks, I know what from. Uh, uh, This, maybe I ought to think about this. So he lapses into silence. They go back uh, shortly uh, one night, uh, he, um, he shaves his head, puts on rags, kisses his sleeping family goodbye, and uh, goes to the throne room where the king is up late at night looking over battle plans or something. And uh, and he looks up, and there's um, Siddhartha, and he says, uh, I don't need to ask where you're going. I I think I know what's happened. And uh, can't you stay? And Siddhartha says, well, tell you what, I will if you can answer this for me. Can you save me from sickness, Poverty, and death. No, I, I can't do any of that. Oh, okay, well, one more possibility. Can you save me from reincarnation so that I don't have to go through this again and again? Nope, can't do that either. Well, I, I didn't think so. Uh, Bye, Dad. And he, he leaves the palace. Uh, the charioteer takes him out of the woods. And he, he uh, eventually finds... Um, a bunch of monks and a couple of gurus and all that, and it doesn't satisfy him, and you know what happens. He sits beneath the Bodhi tree and is enlightened there, and there's other good stories about it. Well, there's also a version where the Buddha, who knows when, is just talking to his disciples, and he says, you know, monks, uh, once I I remember it occurred to me that uh, people get sick, People get poorer, people die, and so forth. And I realized, if this is the lot of humanity, I ought to do something about it. So there's nothing about gods popping up in disguise or his father being a world emperor and all this stuff. Now, which one of those is more likely to be accurate? Uh, well, of course, it would have to be the mundane one, but there's no particular reason to believe in that either, especially since uh, the the story of the the great going out, as it's called, was already being told about uh, Mahavira, the founder of Jainism, in the previous generation, uh, and it looks like they just hey sounds good. Gee, who who was the one that did that? Uh, well, I guess probably the Buddha. Um, very much as when the medieval Catholic Church heard that story, they thought that uh, the the hero must be a, a European nobleman who decided to become a Catholic monk. Uh, I mean, they it, it was garbled all along. Uh, so there's there's a bit of a problem, and similarly, it, it expands out the other end too, because. Mahayana Buddhism developed the idea that there had been 24 previous Buddhas many ages apart, and uh, they all went through exactly the same set of events in their career that Siddhartha had gone through. Uh, the same thing, only it was all kind of a sham, like with the gods in that first story. Uh, and it was uh, play-acting. Uh, and they were thinking this about Siddhartha himself, that, uh, well, he must have been, he must have known what the others did. Uh, and, uh, and so it was all kind of a, of a, of an act, docetic. And that makes you wonder if Western scholars who like to be able to point to a definite founder of, relig- of a religion, uh, decided to say, well, I bet you number 25 was the historical founder. I don't see any reason to think so. He's just like all those others. Deepankara, Avalokiteshvara, Amitabha, and so on and so on. Why think he's any different? Could have been, but there's no particular reason to think so. So I I tend to think, as some earlier Western scholars of Buddhism did, that um, he's a purely symbolic figure that they uh, hung all of their teaching on to Right. Okay, that's it for this exciting episode. I'll see you next time on another um, uh, thrill-packed installment of the Bible Geek. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa.